Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the culture we love that society can sometimes make us feel ashamed of. My name is Caroline and my underwear is consistent with the time period but not my actual period. Joining me is historian, author and favourite of the Queen, Dr Emma Southern. Hi, hey. How are you? So good for you to be back. Last time you were here, you were here just like as a fan of, uh, of uh, Larry McFarlane's fiction, but now you're here as a historian. In my proper role as a professional woman, yeah, rather than just a little fangirl. <laughs> Some people would just call me a fangirl of the Romans, but that would misunderstand the complexity of my relationship with <laughs> So I am a huge fan of your podcast that you have with uh, Gina Mathewson, who's um, another favourite guest of the pod. Um, and it's called uh, History is Sexy, where you debunk a lot of sort of myths about the past. And while I was listening to all these back episodes, it, it you really made me realize that period pieces, whatever you want to call them, they are so a part of how we understand history and how we understand ourselves through history and like how we decide which history is worth enjoying and which of it is silly and just ladies having feelings in in long rooms <laughs> and nice dresses yeah <laughs> yeah so i i thought that like an a uh, fun crossover for the two of us is just like talking about these costume dramas talking about how they prop up our ideas of history when people hate them when people like them w- what we think is like responsible representation of the past versus just like someone clearly being historically inaccurate but emotionally accurate if you know what I mean yeah or honest about how inaccurate they are because I'm fine like I I have a very strong opinion that um historical drama and costume drama and historical fictions of all kind are really important um and that they're not um, they're written off as kind of frivolous or passive entertainment or as being inherently very conservative for Daily Mail readers. Um, and they don't get a lot of kind of cultural engagement, particularly, unless it's about the war, in which case they're suddenly very broadsheet important. Um, but they are the way that 99.9% of people engage with the past. Like that is history for the vast majority of people. As a person who writes non-fiction books about history, like I can tell you that most people don't read non-fiction books about <laughs> history. Um, and that the amount of people who come up to me, they're like, oh, I just don't really read non-fiction. Like I don't read history. I don't do history. I don't really know anything about history. Da, da, da. But they'll be, they'll be watching Downton. They'll watch historical films. They'll have gone to see um that one about the war by Christopher Nolan um they'll have seen Save It Private Brian or they have seen loads of historical films they'll watch historical telly they'll watch historical adaptation but they don't think that they do history but they are they're engaging with the past by engaging with this presentation of the past so that's how most people see the past so they deserve to be looked at as something 
which is history, basically. I'm also like a super radical, um, all history is interpretation from the point in which it is made through to the creation of it as fiction. So all history and all historical, like, all historical products deserve to be treated as history, whether it is an academic article which goes into the meaning of one single word in an inscription that someone found, yeah. or whether it is a big, like, $20 million blockbuster film about the same kind of thing. Like, it's all creating and talking about the past through the interpretation of somebody. It's so interesting. So, for example, like, in this, you know, this notion would mean that like Homer's the Iliad, which obviously was fantasy to him, but we use as a way of understanding his time period still, you know what yeah. I mean? Or like, um, is as valuable as Game of Thrones. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, although people who confuse fantasy, medieval fantasy and medieval history are some of my favorite people because I find them so hilarious. They're like, not historically accurate, but a black person in the, this Tolkien adaptation, you're like, well, it's not historically accurate to have an elf. So, <laughs> um, not sure what your line is while you're okay with the Tolkien trees, but less so. <laughs> uh, because it's not, that's not history. That's a kind of an imagination, an imaginative version of what we think the Middle Ages is. And that's like kind of emblematic of my whole point, really, which is that when you think of the Middle Ages, if I was to ask anybody to imagine medieval period in England or Europe they would pretty much imagine Game of Thrones or yes. Tolkien or it would be something that's effectively a fantasy mindset which is largely rural some towns mostly war life is short and brutal and horrible uh, a really good in every now and then yeah and probably ladies have their boobs out just all the time um but they don't have all of the you know the stuff that is actually medieval stuff like paved roads and people having arguments over toilets and um like we did a podcast about whether the past was really smelly um which was a lot about we have all of this documentation that says people complained about there being sewage in the streets and people letting their toilets run into their houses but they were complaining about it <laughs> oh my god that's so important that's such an important to that thing that we all know and we've all known since we were like eight that like do you know the history was smelly and full of shit in the streets like when people tell you about that it's because they're like writing to the council saying they literally are yeah they're literally (laughs) writing to the council saying the street sweepers aren't doing their job properly and i'm having to i trod in a cow pad this morning and i didn't like it um they're not writing about it as though because if it was wasn't a problem they wouldn't have mentioned it Oh my god, that's so obvious, and yet I've never considered it ever. Um, and so, but that is what you get. Like you get all of these in the world, like the past was smelly and largely fantastical, because that's what we see on the telly, and that is the way that most people think about the medieval world. And so, um, that is then how they read all things about the medieval world. And if you talk to them, go, hey, well, would you like to? about town councils <laughs> medieval they don't really believe that town councils exist the, there's something i want to talk about is that the thing of like so as at the so the myth of like history was smelly and everyone was dead by the time they were 30 and when you were 12 you were middle-aged yep. and that all these like myths that we create about history and that we uphold through the creation of popular culture um and i think they go hand in hand as well with myths like 
you know, um, women had zero rights until 1981 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and all, all this other stuff that we, um, that we present again and again, and we recycle again and again, all of those are sort of tools to create a sort of common delusion that history was bad. We're on an uphill trajectory. Things get better every year. You should be grateful. Um, otherwise what's the point? Yeah. Oh, it's called weak history that that everything is getting better every time, and we're like on a upward progression constantly. Oh, and yeah, the women's stories in the past thing I always find really interesting because that's the kind that's what gets written off as costume drama or or, or period drama rather than historical epic. Like, mm-hmm. um, and do you think there is a class division between historical epic versus costume drama? Yeah, one gets like think pieces and. Um, like written about in a serious manner and reviewed places, and the other is like um, considered to be Sunday night entertainment for people who aren't paying attention. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or okay. Teenagers or girls, and doesn't get those like big thought pieces in the Guardian or whatever about um, how important it is as a um, in terms of its epic scale and blah blah blah. Um, but. So that, but and they're largely about women's stories, um, and they almost always—not always, but almost always—tell the story of one woman overcoming patriarchal oppression in order to be the bad, most badassy badass that ever existed. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And and I think that's largely because one, that's a really cool story to tell. Like everybody likes that story. Two, patriarchal oppression in the past is much easier to show than patriarchal oppression now because you can literally have. Um, women pretty much always elite women but regardless like aristocratic women who are like having their parents say um you can't marry this person you have to marry this person you are our property we're going to give you away you have no agency you nothing that you say or do is necessary you just need to look pretty and marry this person and then they can fight Shakespeare against in love i literally watched shakespeare in love yesterday yes <laughs> on your That's a good movie. it was a great movie you know what it was ahead of its time is my theory on shakespeare in love. <laughs> um but yeah exactly like that story and you get that or like you can't be the queen you're a girl um or <laughs> you can't you know you can't go to war you're a girl you can't do whatever you're a girl um and that story is really easy to tell in the past because one we totally believe that women couldn't do anything in the past um and two it um a lot of aristocratic women kind of couldn't so it's fair enough um but one it tells a story where you end up believing that only like five exceptional women in the past could ever achieve anything um and you had to be exceptional to do something which just the sheer number of stories that it's possible to tell about women overcoming <laughs> their patriarchal oppression suggests that it was perhaps something that was more average than fiction might suggest <laughs> um and two suggests that patriarchal oppression in the modern day doesn't really exist because we can marry yes. who we want because we can have a job, because we can, um, you know, I can go out to go to war if I felt like it, um, that our patriarchal oppression is much easier to brush off. Um, Because you can go, well, it wasn't as bad as, you know, poor Gwyneth Paltrow had it in. (laughs) She had to marry Colin Firth with an earring. She had to go to Virginia. Awful. Like that ending is still such a bummer. It, it takes me by surprise every time I watch it. I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah. Um I'm convinced that's the, why it won the Oscar. 
Um, because it's a bummer ending. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fun movie for girls, but it's a bummer at the end. But it's tragic in the end. Also, it was written by Tom Stoppard. Um, and, but I watched it yesterday because I hadn't seen it in ages. And you said, I fucking <laughs> I love Shakespeare in Love. I was like, I don't really remember. I kind of remember it just being a romance. Um, but one, it's not really, apart from all the bunking. Um, and two, it's so ahead of its time. It's so postmodern. <laughs> Like, oh my god! Like, okay, what do you? Yeah, what do you mean by ahead of its time? So it, you get these like, post, what are called postmodern historical films, right? Which are deliberately anachronistic. So um, things like Marie Antoinette and A Knight's Tale and things mm-hmm. and Bridgerton, which use modern music and deliberately use like modern stuff in order to be emotionally authentic, so that you kind of really feel how they how somebody in that crowd would feel or how somebody in that position would feel because this is the music that you would put on if that was happening um like if you were running to your bedroom and slamming your door then this is the music that you might put on um and which have all of these like little nods which say yeah this is fiction for a modern audience um and we know you're there and you're you're looking but that's okay um yeah and it has so many of those. Like one of the first shots is William Shakespeare screwing up a bit of paper and throwing it into a mug, which says um, a souvenir from Stratford upon Avon. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even noticed that. I've seen it so many times. It's so funny. <laughs> like in the first scene where Will's on it and he's like scribbling them down and throwing them away, and his um, the Romeo and the pirates Ethel, the pirate's daughter. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and you're like, okay, we know that this is not going to be that. Like, <laughs> like it's you're doing that little wink to the audience. And I think a lot of people at the time totally didn't get that. Um, and also, it won the Oscar over Save a Private Ryan, which is a costume drama that is serious costume drama. <laughs> and that really annoyed a lot of people. It's so it's so exciting to me that, that actually happened. It was like this one year where like the Oscars was run by me for yeah. some reason, even though I was but a child. I don't know how I managed it. <laughs> it's very impressive work. Yeah. A sign of your power early, obviously. <laughs> um, I want to go back to this idea of costume dramas wherein we know you're there and we know you're looking, as you just said. This thing with Marie Antoinette where you know, and, and I think that Marie Antoinette and also a movie that gets talked about far less, which is the 2004 adaptation of Vanity Fair, directed by Marinaire. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen it, but I adore it. And, and you know, both of those films were really misunderstood in their time. And I think because they're doing this thing that people attempt to do it again and again, and whether or not people accept it is entirely down to the mood of the time, whether people are willing to make the intellectual leap of like, this is about emotional authenticity and what it feels like to be a 14 year old girl who lives in this gilded cage, but you have a certain freedom within that cage, but it is nonetheless a cage kind of thing for unlike how often people reject that stuff, but come back to it later. I find very interesting. Yeah. Um, when they've kind of got a bit more used to it, the more you have of them, the more used to the idea of it. I think people are like, um, when a nice tale came out, 50% of people were like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> oh my god! It the intro to a Knight's Tale <laughs> Amazing. is so amazing. I watched it on YouTube um, this morning just to like remind myself, and like it's still every bit as powerful as it was when I was like fourteen. The thing of just like the "We Will Rock You" intro yeah. for a medieval joust 
and like a review of a review of a night's tale referred to it as 90 minutes of people breaking ikea furniture off each other <laughs> because of all the like malm wood that's going on yeah. and splintering around the place um and this thing of like the way that they're sort of bashing out the rhythm of we will rock you and it's so funny but you also you really kind of feel it in your chest and you're like instantly more so than when I watch Gladiator which is a movie I fucking love by the way and I've, <laughs> I've watched it like several times in the last decade but when I watch Gladiator I watch it with a level of weirdly more distance than I do with A Knight's Tale I think like oh wow this is a historical thing and like I guess Gladiators existed I guess that's what happened and this is interesting but when I watch A Knight's Tale, I'd be like, oh man, I would be fucking pumped to see these guys <laughs> yeah. kill each other. Like, and Gladiator doesn't do that for me. <laughs> yeah, I would totally watch these two guys ride into each other and whack each other incredibly hard. That looks really fun. Um, and I'm really invested in this guy's journey to become the best of jousters. Like, um, yeah, and there is that like engagement in a kind of you can imagine yourself in that audience in a way that you can't in like yeah in gladiator or any virtually anything that does gladiators I'm trying to think of anything that doesn't make them weird but they don't um because there's this whole thing with rome like as soon as you make it classical um it's in, quote unquote important and therefore it's pretty much just about war or politics it's about julius caesar or it's about an army somewhere and therefore it doesn't it's not very fun. <laughs> very rarely, except I Claudius, which bangs. Um, but largely, they're like not very. They're not very interested in your emotional engagement with it, unless you really love people fighting and battle scenes. And some people do really love fighting and battle scenes. But I would rather imagine myself in that situation. I'd be like, what would it be like if I was there? Um, Totally, because like you watch Gladiator and you're completely like invested. Well, I am anyway. I'm completely invested in Russell Crowe's sort of journey. I'm just like, I'm just a, a very easy mark when it comes to <laughs> movies. I'm like, yes, he he has to go meet his wife in the afterlife. He has to go through. He's the father of a murdered son. <laughs> what about that? Don't you understand? <laughs> but I'm thinking about Russell Crowe all the time I and, and sometimes I'm thinking about the weird incest brother and sister uh -huh. but but I'm almost never thinking about what does it feel like to go to a gladiator game but I think about that all the time during <laughs> yeah because it's I'm just like what a weekend the whole time this is important and I care um, yeah I'm... and I guess we have to think which which feeling is more valuable I mean they're both to think I understand what it feels like to be um, a normal person in a normal time, even though these are, this, this is factually incorrect. Or I understand what it's be like to be an exceptional person in an exceptional time. <laughs> well, I mean, they're both useful. Um, <laughs> my, my feeling is that I will always go for like, what does it feel like to be in this world, basically? Um, and that's generally easier to do than to be accurate because accuracy is really hard. Like to be emotionally authentic is something that um is more engaging to me um, and that's yes. also something that I'm always really trying hard to do in my books which is to give people a modern analogy of like if you're in this situation which you can definitely imagine like if you can imagine watching Love Island right now then you can imagine what it would be like to be watching this um then um because I think it's important to make people 
engage with the past as a living thing that was made up of real people like and the problem with the exceptional people in exceptional times thing to me is that it makes the past look really distant and as though you're always looking at it through glass and as though these people didn't snub mm. their toes and sometimes fall over and make a bit of a tip themselves or have like really deep feelings when they were teenagers and then get to their 30s and be like oh my god I'm getting wrinkles <laughs> and have like <laughs> interior worlds that are external from great journeys and great men um and what I like about history is the interior worlds and like the real like everyday bits so I like films and tv which is more goes for that kind of tries to give you that more than the I am a great man doing great things I'm the father of the murdered son and I'm also can behead five people in a single stroke yes do you know what's funny is that like the the type of historical dramas that like as you say the things that like get a huge amount of like Oscar buzz and like they're you know, it's very serious it's about Rome or it's about the war or whatever those are so often applauded for their scale right like either the scale of battles or like um accuracy of costume or like all this bigness right like I mean I saw 1917 cinema is the last like big historical film I can remember seeing and I and I loved it but like yeah it was definitely something you were supposed to be impressed by to you know in terms of to look at and then I think of other things again like Marie Antoinette like your Vanity Fairs um even like your like Wes Anderson-y type movies where when things have aesthetics like very specific aesthetics mm. specific color schemes or like the favorite as well right like always what you will see in those reviews is it's fussy <laughs> it's 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 style over substance uh-huh. and i find that because like those tend to be the kind of movies that women like women like because they like I don't know, I guess we just like looking at nice stuff. Like, we're just, all going to the cinema to look at nice things, Just right? like looking at costumes. I mean, I'm a real <laughs> sucker for anything with a great costume because I love looking at nicely made fabrics. <laughs> and then sewn in beautiful Like, yesterday watching Gwyneth Paltrow's dresses and then Judy Dench's dresses in... Oh. Like, you can see why they won the Oscar for costumes when she won every war going. is They're gorgeous. And looking at dresses is nice, but obviously incredibly girly um and it's like not the kind of thing that men can stand up and say you know what I liked the dresses uh, <laughs> which is you know, I like the brocade yeah which is a shame for them if that's related to what well, eventually I'm going to do a whole podcast episode on this um when we get to it but there's this thing called the great male renunciation of the 19 like 1890s to 1920s um which is the point at which men's clothing got really boring um because obviously in the past in, and in all of those costume dramas, like one of the great things about them is you get to see like Nicholas Holt prancing around in a really fancy oh, waistcoat. And... So often it is Nicholas Holt. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he looks great in one. Um, and yeah, and men in floofy shirts and um, nice trousers and extraordinarily embroidered outfits and things like that. And they're great to see. But there's this point um, like in the uh, 19th century, early 20th century, where men were just like, no. Uh, you know what that's too feminine um, and it's all kind of tied up in the invention of homosexuality as a thing um but like no masculinity is gray it suits it doesn't have any color it is um it is straight down the line buttoned up no fun uh, it's called the great male renunciation I love that. Let's talk a little bit more about that because it, it links into this thing about costume dramas where often you'll see like a person of color or like a gay relationship or something and it'll be the first 
thing where where sort of more conservative viewers will say, well, that's not realistic or mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Um, All brown and black people arrived on one boat in the Windrush in 1948, and before that, yeah, there were no people of color in the entirety of Europe. It's weird. <laughs> um, but yeah, you will get people say that um, constantly, um, and it's um like perpetually infuriating there's been a whole wave of publishing about it by historians um in the past few years of like like black and british and oliver tells um black europeans and black tudors and things like that which are like but literally just pointing to people of color in the past and going look look they're yeah. right there um and you, this is the other thing with the, the like historical fiction being the thing that paints the past for everybody and tv is that the idea that the past was white is completely invented by television and film by which emerges in like the 20th century when we are in a world where it emerges from america in the 20th century where they were weirdly um not that keen on putting anyone who wasn't white on the telly um or in film um and so they just create completely white spaces that then reinforce themselves over and over again, because then you want to tell people that you've got a Tudor period, then we know what the Tudor aesthetic for television is. So we create it. So as soon as you, you don't want to deviate from that. So as soon as you put a brown person or a black person in that, then you are deviating from the idea that everybody already has from all of the other Tudor television that they have seen. But if you go to museums or you go to archives, or if you were the kind of like history nerd, then and you looked at Tudor paintings, you looked at Tudor artworks, you read Tudor books, um, then you would know that they're all over the place, <laughs> that there's all yeah. kinds of stuff. Because there's all kinds of paintings of Henry VIII standing next to his troop of Moorish um, dancers and all of these people from all over the world. Like, as soon as people started sailing around the world and colonising people, they all say it opened up the way for other people to come over here as well um and it's not a white past at all um i get this with roman stuff as well like this idea that roman britain was completely white which it just wasn't like you can look at inscriptions and have people going i moved here from africa um and and all kinds of you know archaeological evidence that it wasn't white but that idea is created by television and the image that people have of a white past is is reinforced over and over again by television and so television is the only thing that can like impact it and can undermine its own myth um because as i say nobody not that many people buy history book not that many people are going to read the oliver towels books not that many people are going to read black tudors but millions and millions of people are going to sit down and watch a prestige um adaptation or Bridgerton or um, a big film about the war and so that's the only way by inserting people of colour over and over again and but basically means throwing those actors into the line of fire over and over again until people are used to seeing them Um, which is horrendous thing that has to be done um, and a horrendous thing that they have to sign up for but the only way that you can undo the image of the past created by visual media is to change how people think of visual media and so when they see a non-white face a person of color in a historical setting they don't immediately go that's not right but they go okay <laughs> what 
Why do you think that there is a reluctance from most filmmakers and most TV makers to include legitimately diverse casts in period dramas? And I don't just mean one person who's like a merchant <laughs> from, the, from the Moors or whatever. I mean like a legitimately diverse cast. Do you think it's because like everyone is just sort of convinced that like, oh, people will be distracted by this and they'll miss out this, they'll, it'll be a distraction because it's, it's, it's a choice or something. Yeah. That's what it is. I think that probably that is some of it. I think that probably most likely is that they have also grown up watching the same stuff. Their entire world has been created in the same way that the viewer's world has. And so their imagination, when they are imagining the characters, they're writing the characters that they're going to be directing they're probably not, unless they've written it with a specific character actor in mind, like they're probably imagining it within the context of stuff that they have already seen. And therefore that means that it's default white. Um, and then they have to make that step to make an active choice to make any given character a person of colour, um, which, and they do know then that they're going to be have to have that conversation over and over again about oh why did you decide that x was going to be a black actress why did you decide that y was going to be an asian actor um and they're not going to be asked other questions and they have to be the kind of person who wants to have those conversations or is willing to have mm. those conversations and you get people like amara sante who is doing you know she's kind of almost out there by herself but um like telling the real stories of people of was she the director of bell yes um so she yes. made bell which is an amazing film um and um she also made a film that i'm blanking on the name of about the um woman who married the uh, leader of ghana um and they were in an interracial marriage um and caused a huge oh, yes. scandal is that the, the one with rosamund pike yeah um, yes, I remember the posters, yeah. And um, and so she's telling these stories, these real stories of people of colour in the past, in aristocratic circles, in the kind of circles where you're used to seeing period drama, um, of, like, you know, people in gorgeous dresses in gorgeous houses, but they are um, the stories of people of colour. Um, but she can't just do it by herself, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you do need other people to be willing to step up and a lot of people are now and you you know Bridgerton obviously um, has gone for colorblind casting which is great um, and lots of other things do make a point of being like we've not done um, specific uh, you know we've not made we've specifically gone out of our way not to make it all white because you are going to get now a decent pushback if you have an all white cast and people are going to be like yeah like young people are great so they are going to be like what the fuck <laughs> um, uh, but they it is still going to be something that comes up in every interview that they do about the whatever thing they have adapted yeah this it, this reminds me of this whole conversation um of, of something that was like alerted to me very recently called the tiffany problem yeah <laughs> Can you explain to our listeners what the Tiffany problem is? So the Tiffany problem was invented by a science fiction author called Joe Walton, um, and it was she it was a throwaway comment in a, an interview, which is great, but it's now become a whole big thing. Um, which is that some things which are real about the past you can't put in to historical fictions because people have such a strong vision of what the past what they think the past looks like that they will not be able to integrate it into it and specifically that tiffany is a very ancient name which is first found in like 13th century 
French manuscript and is possibly a um, a nickname for Theophany or Theophana, which is a very ancient Greek name. So it could be that people have been calling each other Tiffany since like 900 AD. <laughs> which is just a funny concept. <laughs> I don't is. know why, but it is. And then at the very least, people have been being called in like their name Tiffany in Europe since like 1348. But if you write a book, say in 1348, and have about medieval France and you have a Tiffany in it, nobody people will be like well no everyone in the past was called like mary and <laughs> um, <laughs> nobody is it sounds like an particularly to americans it sounds like an 80s name like it, it's not something that fits in the past and so there are certain things that you have to tone down from reality or change to from reality in order to make them seem more historically accurate to readers or to viewers um the, she mentioned this in response to a question about her including a gay relationship in her historical novel. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously this is something that comes up over and over again, this idea that um, because the word homosexuality was invented in like 1890, that means that um, homosexuality as a concept and as an action was invented in 1890. No one had ever thought of kissing another girl before <laughs> uh, before that point in the whole of human history. Um, and so you know, you will get people who are like, well, you can't have any gay things in the past. It didn't exist. It's, only, it's a 20th century invention, um, which is less so now, but certainly was when she invented the concept. Um, and, you know, and it's a thing where you have to, you have to whitewash the past, you have to straighten the past because um, nuns having sex with each other is the kind of thing that makes people go, oh. Um, and you have to take out the name Tiffany, apparently. <laughs> and also I heard the, the example I had read about when reading about the Tiffany problem was back to our friend Gladiator um, <laughs> was the apparently the original cut had billboards of um of the character uh within yeah. the film which was apparently real it's they, completely they did real, have billboards yeah. in ancient Rome uh, they did massive billboards and souvenirs as well no it's never a souvenir stall in um <laughs> films where gladiators are finally annoying because you could buy like souvenirs of your favorite gladiators doing their best moves which I think is amazing oh my God. do you think the animated Hercules is probably the best representation <laughs> of like the athletic yeah. industrial complex it, in ancient times I do there is an athletic <laughs> industrial um you know you could buy all kinds of gladiators stuff um, and people had their favorite gladiators and they had paintings of them and these little you get very very fancy which would have been very very expensive blown glass um like so they're like blown glass mugs um which have the gladiator and then like his number of wins on and then it will have him doing one of his most famous moves um which must have been ludicrously expensive so these are like elite things <laughs> oh my god and these are people who don't live very long yeah uh, they do not live very long, uh, longer than you might expect, because gladiators, gladiator battles, uh, I'm going to bust my own a myth now just for the fun of it, but gladiator battles okay. were not mostly fought to the death. Um, oh. Almost, there's like lots of arguments about how many of them were, but maybe 10% end in a kill. Um, it's always incredibly exciting when they do, um, but most of it's like more like fencing. Um, with bigger weapons a lot of the pleasure is about the the kind of beauty of the moves and the way that they move against each other in the fight um, and then 
one of them will fall and the other one will win um and everybody goes home to fight another day but you get loads who are like four for 16 times 114 um and what a great day out <laughs> do you know what I mean because like when I imagine that I imagine like you're a bit sloshed on wine it's hot you can smell the burger van yeah. you can smell the onions do you know what I mean yeah pretty much it's boiling there's thousands of people there everyone's having a go also so it's a full day out so you have beast hunting in the morning um so you what you've watched is loads of professional hunters chasing around like a rhinoceros um and then four sad looking lions and an emu um and they've all been killed and then there were some like some executions and then you have get to watch some men doing some fighting and then tomorrow you're going to the races and the races are brilliant so <laughs> oh my god oh what a, what a day like better than any festival that's better than seeing like I don't know, car seat headrest <laughs> in some field in Kent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Much better than seeing like a one small car like fly past you. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 250 yeah. miles an hour. We've talked a lot about sort of how both of us prefer a kind of this emotional integrity rather than this sort of like technical or what we think of as being a technical accuracy or what's been established as technical accuracy because as we've established like you know history is this sort of like ball of play-doh that we keep playing with until it just goes brown and weird <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um but there's other kind of side of it that I want to talk about too which is um the things that position themselves as being historically accurate with a tone that suggests utter seriousness. Mm, like the crown. But, like the crown, which, do you know what? I'm, I'm not going to shit all of the crown. I've enjoyed the crown. I've binge watched the crown just like everybody else. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm not, I'm susceptible to its, its ways. But I remember last Christmas, I think it was season five that was out. Um, there was an episode that really, um, really moved me because it exposed something I didn't know about before. And it was 
this storyline about the Queen's cousins, the Queen Mother's cousins, rather, who are Nerissa and Catherine Bowes Lyon. Um, they, they were, you know, born with very severe mental disabilities. They were living in institutions their entire lives. And the way the Crown frames this is that Princess Margaret, played by Helena Bonham Carter, is having a bit of a, like, a midlife crisis. She sort of goes on a sort of detective hunt um, and, and sort of tracks down these cousins and finds that they were hidden away for the specific reason that um, when when the queen when when the queen's father ascended the throne, which he did after the abdication of his own brother, the queen mother's bloodline was called into question, and therefore to have people with disabilities in her bloodline would call into question the hereditary principle, which is what the episode is called. And I was incredibly um, moved by this. And I guess I, also because I have people with disabilities in my family and, and I, I just was very stirred and shocked and obviously immediately went down a Google rabbit hole and found that like a lot of that is untrue. Like the cousins did exist. They were in institutions, but this whole concept of the hereditary principle was invented for the sake of the show. Mm -hmm. And that to me, I, I, I felt really looted. I felt like this was a really irresponsible thing to do. Because it's a bit like what you said earlier about like when we see misogyny in the past, we say, "Oh, that was really bad." Look, Gwyneth Paltrow can't can't do a play. <laughs> I can yeah. I, I can do a play and marry who I want. Therefore, I'm fine. Therefore, things are getting better. You watch this episode of The Crown and you think, "God, the history is barbaric. The royal family are barbaric." Um, uh, isn't it terrible what they these people they hid away in order to secure this ridiculous notion of monarchy and like and that's supposed to distance us from or or it serves the function of distancing us the way that modern society sort of ignores disabled people all the time it's almost like set up to do that mm -hmm. you know so it like it almost like gives contemporary audiences a sort of a sick note by saying like oh aren't aren't the crown mad for doing this horrible thing you, do you know what i mean yeah and are we doing better than that like wasn't it horrible yeah. back then but everything's much better now and everything's okay and you don't need to worry about disabled people anymore yes <laughs> uh, yes exactly that's in essence yes institutions, so it's okay like well I have some questions about ableism in the world, actually. <laughs> um, but yeah, it does yeah. do that. And this is a thing with um, with kind of historical fiction is often like inherently conservative. Sometimes it goes out of its way not to be. Um, but historical fiction, which almost doesn't admit that it's fiction and things like The Crown and things like that they kind of almost present themselves as documentary particularly because half yes. the people in it are still alive um it all it's like channel 4 do this all the time they do all of those like they did those shows about the brexit like election and they did ones about brown and blair and they do these kind of fictionalizations of modern history um which then become embedded as the narrative of modern history yeah and you're like but it's fiction and therefore it has to hit the beats of fiction like fiction has beats that real life doesn't work to history has hero cycles and it has like you have to have uh, three acts and you have to have things happen within a set sometimes things in the real world take a decade and you have to cut them down to four days because you <laughs> um yes yes like that's the function that's what you're doing when you're writing fiction is you're having to fit into the the 
the requirements of writing fiction. And so be honest about the fact that it's fiction <laughs> and don't, I, I get more het up about things like, like that, like the crown making up this whole idea and then presenting it alongside something that you know definitely happened, like mm. Margaret Thatcher's abdication. Um, mm. And people putting Blair Brown into a into a fictionalized narrative because much as I everything that I know think I know about the Napoleonic Wars comes from my unironic love of sharp novels. Um, <laughs> but rather unironic, it's completely unironic. I am looking at my enormous collection of sharp novels right now, um, <laughs> and everything I know about. And if you were to ask me about the Napoleonic War, I would probably tell you something about it from sharp novels um particularly the napoleonic war in europe like that's everything i know but i have like two decades of being a historian so i am able or i'm I'm incredibly obsessed with taking that step and saying but i only know about this from sharp novels Mm -hmm. um and not everyone is that person not everyone is a historian and so people are going to be going around or people who didn't go on a google search afterwards are going to be going around going god yeah did you know that the queen hid some people because they were this whole idea of the heredity principle um and there's nothing to to say it's fiction there's nothing that nods to the audience or turns around and says oh this bit's made up um and that's the danger Mm. of historical fiction which is kind of the lack of an author's note sometimes. Um, and you get them a bit now. Sometimes you'll get um, like Versailles. Did you ever watch Versailles? No, I didn't see that one. So that had a corresponding show after it. Um, I think Greg Jenner was on um, where historians would talk about it and say, oh, this bit has been um, like put together. And if we look at this scene, then we can, this is where this has come from. And this is the, um, it's kind of, a way of putting an author's note on the show and saying this bit's fictionalized, this bit's not, this bit we've taken directly from these diaries, this bit, this is a direct recreation of her dress, um, but this bit actually happened to this person, but we've put it onto her story because it's better. Um, and that's without that, without having somebody say that, and that just this assumption that everybody will know it's fiction and therefore won't believe in it, um, it becomes quite misleading. Um, which is the, a, a danger of historical fiction that is what makes a lot of historians, like actual historians in universities, be like, that didn't happen. Historical fiction is bad for you. Everyone, Hilary yeah. Mantel is misleading people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, it's what makes them grumpy more than anything is the lack of, is the assumption of creators that everyone will know it's fiction when, or that, when what they're doing is mixing fact and fiction and they know that <laughs> nobody else does but the thing is it's like the the with the you know the um the favorite or marie antoinette or something like that on one end of the spectrum or even like a cartoon like hercules or anastasia yeah um which are you can see they're vividly playing with history um but the uh, but kind of encouraging you and make you excited to go and find the real story i mean 
like fucking I, I got a bite of that Anastasia apple when I was like nine years old and I have been <laughs> snorting up every new piece of information ever since um, see whereas I never watched Anastasia when I was younger but for some reason I knew about Rasputin and was well into Rasputin for a really long time don't you have like a triple part series <laughs> on Rasputin <laughs> which is largely a lot of it is about um so I read um it's very funny it has a, a an entire breakdown of the song Rara Rara Rasputin. <laughs> um, oh my god, but listen to this. It's based on his writings, but also the writings of Yusupov who killed him, like the three people who killed him, um, and also his daughter's biography of her father, which is the funniest thing I've ever read in my entire life, and ends with her being displayed Rasputin's alleged penis in a flat in Paris by a woman who believes he is the risen Christ. <laughs> oh my God. I swear, Rasputin's penis has got around this world so many times. It is. It's like it's always just fucking appearing somewhere. It is. The thing that is supposedly his penis, which is a horse penis, um, is in a museum in St. Petersburg and you can Google it um, and there's pictures of it on the internet. I don't necessarily recommend it because it's very frightening. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, that is the alleged penis that Maria was showing. But um, I'll go on about Maria. Listen to the three part series. I like, go on about Maria. Please, everyone, ages. I'm definitely going to. <laughs> I'm, I don't think I have what it in me to Google the horse penis. No, but, don't. Uh, I'll definitely be be listening to the series. <laughs> um, so yeah, it makes me think that like when the Crown is doing this thing, or even Downton Abbey, which I do think people watch and then think they believe a lot about, they know a yeah. lot about that time period. I almost like need them to do the signal, the signal of like, we know you're watching yeah. and we're having the play, like playing like Lizzo, just faintly underneath the scene. Yes. <laughs> and there's all kinds of ways that you can do it. Like you can, that you just put that little, take that bit of glass away, basically, that says you're not looking at a painting, you're looking at fiction. Like you're looking at an interpretation of events. Yeah. Or, like you yeah. can have the, bolt-on stuff or you can have Lizzo in it or you can have like even a narrator that's like talking to the audience and makes them aware that they're an audience mm. <laughs> um, like works but there's a there is a certain kind of um then it becomes not serious like when it becomes not comforting and if something's not serious it's not worth making exactly as learned. Um, although you might win an Oscar if you're lucky <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> then people will criticise that for ages. I found an article actually that was um went back and polled people about whether like polled members of the Academy, um, whether they would whether they would vote for Praise Saber Private Ryan or um Shakespeare in Love. Um, and basically bullied people into saying that they wouldn't that like they wouldn't have given him the Oscar because uh, <laughs> it's a worse film than Saving Private Ryan. You're like, is it though? Is it though? God, people feel too strongly about Saving Private Ryan. Um, why do you think, I mean, I've got many theories on this, that women specifically uh, are so excited by period dramas and why, even though they're so frequently about female oppression, and yet they're the things that we watch as comfort. Mm. I feel like there's two kinds <laughs> two kinds of ladies who watches something for comfort. They're the murder ladies or the costume drama ladies. <laughs> and I think it's the same instinct. I think it is. And I think it is that, God, I'm glad I'm not them instinct. Yes. <laughs> um, the, like, I'm a murder lady. 
Um, so <laughs> my, I'm like lover God. I'm glad I've not been horribly murdered by somebody, and no one's ever tried to drag me into their car. But it's like um, from costume drama, you get that God. I'm glad I can marry whomever I want. God, I'm glad that I don't mm. have to be put into a corset because corsets are universally described. Like you all will always have a scene of someone being laced into a corset really violently. Um, mm. Or I'm glad that I'm not fainting somewhere, or that my husband can't do this to me. Um, like God, the past was horrible, but my life is actually kind of great. Um, is is a nice feeling. Like God, it's at least I may have to shave my legs three times a week, and I may have a glass ceiling, and I may never be taken seriously in a context of, of my professional worth, and I may, you know, get called a wee girl constantly. But at least I can marry who I want. At least I can do a play if I want to. <laughs> I can do a play. But I think it's this interesting thing because like with the murder ladies, it's very straightforward. It's this thing of like, ah, oh, now I know how to avoid my inevitable murder. <laughs> and I won't be murdered. It's Yucky never get yum. married. Never, yeah. never talk to a person. <laughs> never get into a car. I mean, that's a whole other um, thing, which I'll also have a talk about, which is like, if you watch murder stuff, which I do constantly, they then never tell you the stories about people who are murdered by the husbands because they're not very exciting stories. But that's 97% of murders. But with with costume dramas, it's this thing where it's like, it's the simultaneous, oh boy, I'm glad it's not me. But I also think we watch them with this thing of like, this romance of like, God, remember when, remember when, it's, it's this thing of like the Mr. Darcy effect, right? Mm-hmm. The like. The men that's were men. That everyone loves about him sort of like lightly flexing his hand after he's touched Lizzie Bennet's hand and then everybody just comes at once. Yeah. It's, I think it's this thing of like these worlds that are full of like romance and formality and restraint that bear, that hide these great oceans of feeling. Mm-hmm. I think that we find very compelling, maybe because we live in very obvious and sexual times. <laughs> yeah. Um, and everyone's having too many feelings on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> uh, like, actually, maybe secretly, it would be better if everybody had to express their feelings with a sigh in a corner. Um, <laughs> but yeah. And also, very importantly, they're great to look at. They're super lovely to look at. Like, you don't mm. necessarily want to put any of those dresses on because they look very heavy. But um, you. And often a lovely score as well. A lovely score. The houses look gorgeous because they're pretty, unless it's like Mole Flanders or something, it's largely about very rich people in very beautiful houses wearing a lot of velvet and brocade and beautiful headpieces and all of this kind of stuff, which, um, yeah, it just is gorgeous to look at. It eradicates all of the stuff behind how you get to that stage, like all of the people that have to put a person in that dress and put her hair up and like make the dress with the hands because sewing machines don't exist but um they, they're fun to look at they're nice they're lovely um so you get that kind of visual pleasure of these gorgeous spaces that you will never be able to have um and wouldn't necessarily want because you'd have to hoover them but and these gorgeous dresses that again they're just fabulous and pleasurable to look at um, and the kind of, gosh, they're having a lot of feelings and I'm glad that I can just sit here with my nice husband and my nice cat. And <laughs> oh, it is good. Is it? Oh, it's just so good. They are. They're brilliant. Um, you know, the the greatest pleasure for me for, out of any historical drama is always the looking at the clothes. Like, I just love to look at clothes. Oh, oh. Uh, and like... 
the thing is, you'll, you'll often see reviews being like, oh, people just want to go and see this and look at the clothes. As if that's a bad thing. As if that isn't a craft and a yeah. department all by itself and an Oscar category. And a whole, like, yeah, a whole art form. And the, uh, we wear clothes all the time and clothes say a lot of stuff about us and clothes are very important. So looking at clothes, it's fine. <laughs> Every day it's you have to... fine. This is a great male renunciation again, you see. God, stop renouncing things, men. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, which has made clothing feminine and frivolous and silly um, and caring about what you wear is silly and foolish and a very masculine thing to do is just have one pair of trousers that you wear until a leg falls off. And, like, I just... I I hate that, you know, a, a film like 1917 can be called epic, which it is. I feel like it is a genuinely epic film. But I do think... Uh, costume department can be epic also i think like 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 an an enormous room with loads of stuff in it that looks really good and you want to touch it is its own form of being epic and all of these artisans had to do all of this research in order to create these things and then had to work so hard to make the beautiful things that fit these people and look after them and care for them and they deserve more credit costume designers Oh. Yes, they do. And I would love to get one on the podcast if anyone is listening and would like to come on and complain about something. <laughs> um, or just love something. What that would be nice too. Um, what, let's, let's just round off by talking about our favourites. Okay. What are your favourites? My favourite costume dramas. Um, I, not really a costume drama. I was going to say Romeo and Juliet, which is like my... <laughs> but that does start off costume drama completely differently if I do bring it into the modern world. But I still think. Oh, it's exactly. Different. But it, again, it's this thing we keep talking about of like the the emotional um, authenticity of Shakespeare feels real. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, oh, I understand why. I now understand why this has been around for hundreds of years. Yeah. You know? But it's great. It is great. Um, my if I was gonna go with one that I love more than anything, probably I Claudius. Actually, it doesn't really get called a costume drama, but because it's prestige. 1970s tv but it straight up is a costume drama about feelings um and i love it so. <laughs> oh i haven't seen it is it t- it's tv right yeah uh, yeah so it's a, a six-part bbc adaptation um basically so that's not the sexy one What's no the sexy one i'm thinking of hbo's Rome. no the the old sexy one oh you know what i'm talking about it's a famous roman old sexy one <laughs> not caligula <laughs> Caligula! <laughs> oh, you know, I've written so much about Caligula in my life and I have such complex feelings about it and I hate it because it's terrible. But also, um, I will talk about it for up to three days. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, Caligula is a sex one. It's a very kind of prestige um, 1970s drama, but it's um, with all kind of white togas and everything. But it looks fantastic and it is balmy. Um, but it's all really just intense. Like everything is indoors on and really small, and it's um, like really intense emotional stuff, basically. Um, and it's all just about the family, um, the Julio Claudian family, and their dynastic and interpersonal woes, basically. Mm. Um, and everyone is horrible in it. Um, but yeah, it's great. So this sounds, I mean, generally, if someone recommends something that they love and you say, that sounds up my street, but that sounds genuinely up my fucking street because <laughs> my my favourite of um, of all time, I think, is The Lion in Winter. Yes. Oh, yes. It's very Lion in Winter. 
I love a lion in winter. It's so good. And the thing is, like, with old costume dramas, it's a double costume drama. <laughs> Because it's about the Middle Ages, but it was made in 1971 or something. Yes, and you're like, like, you get two. Oh my God, they're showing a woman in a bed, like, covered completely. This is scandalous. It is okay. Any like anyone, the Lion Winter. It is like probably more prestige, you know, than I generally talk about in the show. But I, I think like I watched it for the first time maybe a year ago. It has since become like a defining cornerstone of my personality. I feel like it's like do you when you you absorb a piece of art and it just like goes in and, and just knocks some things around, yeah. just like re- rearranges the house a little bit. Like it has rearranged the house. I like I watch it so often. Just I'll just Google clips on YouTube all the time. Get through the first 20 minutes where you don't have a fucking clue what they're saying or what's going on. <laughs> Your body will adjust yeah. and then it will be the best film you've ever seen. It's like watching The Wire where you're like, well, just watch the first four episodes and be aware that you're not going to know what's happening. But then episode four, you're gonna it's going to click and you're going to be like, this is the greatest yes! thing I've ever seen. That's what happens with Lionel Winter. You're like, don't know who these people are and they're talking in that way that suggests that they're very Shakespearean actors doing a play and film. But... Now Something I get it. happens then <laughs> yeah. if you're, it, yeah, and it only, it, yeah, it won't take four episodes. It'll just take like 20 minutes or so and you will just be so rewarded. And I always, I bawl my eyes out. I have the capability to bawl my eyes out of costume dramas that I really love. I think 99% of them I will watch while on my phone while I have cramps mm-hmm. and I'll be like, that's nice over there. Look at, look at your <laughs> nightly being nice. I love yeah. her. And then there's this other like, percentage of them were that it can like encourage a kind of a heaving deep soul cry than more than any other kind of format Lionel Winter is one and Barry Lyndon is the other oh yeah because both of them remind me and it comes in the last sort of act where it's like you think you're watching this these films about people in the past who are very different to you and then they it, something happens where the the rawness of just human experience comes out, and then you're reminded that none of this matters because they're all dead, and you will die too. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm on the floor. I'm like heaving. Okay. Yeah. Then you're like everyone dies. Sometimes they I don't know. leave a mark on the world. Yeah, they're dead and everyone's going to die. And I have this sliver of time to do stuff with and I don't know what to do next. My version of that is when I read epigraph. Because uh, I really like epigraphy, ancient epigraphy. And so I will happily read... Okay, sorry, you said like four, four words I don't know what they are. <laughs> epigraphy is inscriptions. So inscriptions on okay. stone. So basically 98% of everything that survives an inscription on stone is a headstone or a memorial of and reading memorials especially from husbands to wives that are like four words done that are like my perfect wife julia who lived for 37 years and my life without you is nothing and and you're like those ones send me into bits like (laughs) this whole life of two people who loved each other and now they're all gone and this is all we have left of them Oh my god, it's too much! And uh, you did an episode recently about the the pets belonging to Romans as well. Yeah. All the, script, the the graves of pets. Yeah, they kill it was me. Too much. Time. The poems. But like, I I this is sort of off topic, but I heard something the other day. Gavin was telling me that he'd read something. So this is like a third hand source, but um, <laughs> that you know, in 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 sort of two hundred thousand years the cities that we have now will mostly be gone because they're all made of metal yeah and they will disintegrate and that, 
yeah, they'll just go back into the earth. But like all those sort of like great big stone ruins of the Romans or whatever, that will probably keep them. Yeah. Uh, right. Where is and that fucks with my head. <laughs> yeah. I, I try not to think about it because it makes me. You know, I read an article ages ago about whether the Anthropocene is a real thing. Like we could talk about the Anthropocene as a geological era that you'll be able to see in the geological record, but you might not because it's so short. Like it, it's going to be like. Sorry, what's the Anthropocene? So it's like it's uh, so you have geological eras that you see in like if you dig through the earth, you see different layers of stuff basically. So you can see. Um, like you can dig right down, you can be like, this earth is 65 million years old. We've got to 65 million years old at the bottom of the thing. Um, or you, And then you have like um, all of the different, like Jurassic and Cretaceous, they're all geological eras that are like several billion years long. Um, and the Anthropocene is is believed to be the, what we will leave behind. So right. in 200 million years, what will be left? Um, and we think because we are the anthros that it will be massive but actually it's going to be like a millimeter (laughs) of rock (laughs) that we leave on this earth emma the past is bad stop (laughs) learning about it no the future is bad (laughs) i don't want to know any more about this it makes me feel too small and too mortal yeah i know it's bad oh god and now as if it weren't any more of a metaphor for our time running out our time on the zoom call is literally running out mm-hmm. dr emma southern you have three minutes to promote your things <laughs> thanks so in order to ensure that i'm remembered for at least two minutes past my own death uh, <laughs> um, uh, podcast called history is sexy uh, with uh, janina matthewson where we answer questions that people don't have the time to research themselves um, and I have a couple of books. One is A History of Murder in the Ancient Rome, which is called A Fatal Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Um, and the other is a biography of Agrippina the Elder, uh, Agrippina the Younger, um, Empress Exile Hustler Hall. Um, and I have another one coming out at some point when it's finished. But those are the places you can find me now. You can find me at emmasouthern.com. It's not about how you think it is, so enjoy Googling. <laughs> Wow, and I hope that website exists long after your death. Me too. Um, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk about history and how depressing This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Caroline O'Donoghue. The podcast was produced and edited by me, with mix and music by Harry Harris and artwork by Gavin Day. If you'd like to email me about the pod, you can do so on sentimentalpod at gmail.com or get in touch with me directly on Twitter or Instagram at Zaraline. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.